This is the Words of West Cork, a podcast series where you'll hear something like this. What I did do was I got up and I uh, certainly at, it was nothing unusual for me particularly to get up at maybe three or four o'clock in the morning. And we'll analyse the words we hear and we'll work out whether we're hearing truth or whether we're hearing lies. And we're looking at the events surrounding the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier. Sophie was murdered in Ireland in West Cork in December of 1996. And we'll look at the words of the people at the centre of the investigation into this unsolved murder. If you haven't listened to the first three episodes of this series yet, I suggest you go back and you start there because in them I'll share the way that I look at the words, the principles that I use when I analyse words, and we hear some really important words, the words from the prime suspect, Ian Bailey, the one-time chief witness, Marie Farrell, other witnesses who claim they can put Ian Bailey in compromising situations, and Ian's partner, Jules. Ian Bailey does and always has denied any part in the murder. If you want more background on the story, I recommend the podcast West Cork, or there's also a documentary on Netflix called Sophie Murder in West Cork, and Sky Crime have a documentary too called Murder at the Cottage. And this podcast only looks at the words we hear, so we don't look at facts, theories, body language, only the words. And we'll look at those words to see if we can get to the truth contained in them. What's really being said by the person we hear from and what isn't being said. And try and work out where there's lies, where there's deception and where people are being truthful. You can see the words for each episode online at wordsofwestcork.com. That's also where you can get in touch to comment, suggest, share your opinions as well, please. And we will get some of the best of those comments, suggestions, questions in the final episode of this podcast series. So far, we've looked at the witnesses, specifically the ones who point to Ian Bailey, and we've found there are definitely questions in the words that they use. We've also looked at Ian Bailey's partner at the time of the murder, and she was his partner for 20 plus years afterwards, Jules Thomas. And I thought she is not being straight with her words. And we started in episode one looking at Ian Bailey, mostly his words around about the time of the murder, just after he was first arrested on suspicion of the murder. His words then were raw. He hadn't had a lot of time to polish them or to think about what impression that it was he wanted to give. So in this episode, I'm going to look at Ian Bailey's words now. More than 20 years after the murder, he's had time to hone his story, to think about how he wants to come across. Whether he's innocent or whether he's guilty, he'd do this. It's perception management. And as he's been accused of murder, if he was innocent, he'd really be working hard on how we thought about him, what perceptions he gave out. The exact same as if he was guilty of the murder or had some part in the murder. He would also be looking at the perception. So it's entirely natural whether you're innocent or whether you're guilty. And when we look at him now, what do we see? In episode one, when I first looked at Ian Bailey, he reassured me in some of the things he said. There was lots of simplicity to his words. And he didn't play down the fact that he was accused of murder, um, that a killing had happened. He didn't try and put any distance from himself in that, which is something that guilty people often do, especially in serious crimes. And in his words, there were indicators of deception at times. And he overqualified some of the things he said. It was almost like a logic puzzle when he was saying, I didn't do it. There was just this lack of a regular firm denial. He spoke more about how he knows he didn't do it rather than I didn't do it. So let's listen to some of Ian's words these days. As everybody knows, 20 
odd years ago there was a murder in, in West Cork and at the time I was um, a journalist, freelance journalist and I finished up reporting on the, the crime and within a few weeks um, I had been identified by the guards falsely as a suspect. That began, that was 20 odd years ago and I have throughout that period I've done everything that I could to protest my innocence uh, because I know I know that I have nothing to do with this and I know that the false narrative that I did have something to do with it is a complete myth I can't prove that I know that it's difficult you know a gap between knowing something and being able to prove so I'm left, I've been left in a situation where I've been accused in France of the murder Ian twice here mentions the murder again. 20 odd years ago, there was a murder in West Cork. And um, I've been left in a situation where I've been accused in France of the murder. And as I said in the introduction to this, he's not downplaying that. He's being upfront and saying, I've been accused of murder. That is a good, reassuring point for me. I mean, there is a little bit of distance. It's a murder and the murder. It's not the murder of Sophie Toscane Duplante or the murder of a woman or it was quite a brutal murder, but I'm reassured by the fact he says murder. He said he finished up reporting on the crime, and, and there he does downplay it. He was reporting on the crime, not the murder. And what else do I want to look at in here? It's where he said, I've done everything that I could to protest my innocence, not prove my innocence, but protest my innocence. And why has he used protest and not proved? Maybe it's in his next set of words, where he said, I can't prove that. The gap between knowing something and being able to prove dot, dot, dot. He doesn't say why he can't prove that. And if I felt I hadn't done something but couldn't prove that I hadn't done that something, I may be tempted to talk more about the why I can't prove that. To expand on that, to explain that, because one of the reasons you can't prove something is it didn't happen. So I would have be more comforted to hear more from him on why he feels he can't prove it he also doesn't say that the other side can't prove it either and you know that is something uh, i guess he has been found guilty in a french court by quite a strange process if i'm being honest with you but he hasn't been charged he hasn't been tried in ireland with the murder and he doesn't seem to stand on that as any sort of proof that there is no evidence, there is no seriousness to these allegations because of the, he's never been charged, it's never even come to court. And again, and I mentioned this in episode one, he talks a lot about what he knows. And here he says, I know, I know that I have nothing to do with this. And I know that the false narrative that I did have something to do with it is a complete myth. I can't prove that. I know that. Uh, the gap between knowing something and being able to prove. And it's very interesting. And I spoke about this um, uh, the first time we spoke about Ian Bailey, and I'm going to mention it again here. There's a big difference between being outright, being really firm and saying, I did not do this. I did not commit murder. I did not murder Sophie. And saying, I know I didn't do it. There's a lot of difference between that. Uh, again, um, if amnesia was involved, if a lot of drinking was involved or drug taking was involved, and the, the, you could say, 
I do not know what I did. I do not know what happened. I have no knowledge of what happened, which is very different from saying that nothing happened. So I'm interested in why he goes a lot in his words to talking about what he knows and not what he did or what he didn't do. As everybody knows, 20 odd years ago, there was a murder in, in West Cork and at the time I was um, a journalist, freelance journalist, and I finished up reporting on the, the crime. And within a few weeks, um, I had been identified by the guards falsely as a suspect. That began, that was 20 odd years ago. And I have, throughout that period, I've done everything that I could to protest my innocence. Uh, because I know, I know that I have nothing to do with this. And I know that the false narrative that I did have something to do with it is a complete myth. I can't prove that. I know that. It's difficult, you know, a gap between knowing something and being able to prove. So I'm I've been left in a situation where I've been accused in France of the murder. Sometimes we can look at someone's words and instead of looking at the truth or the lies behind those words, we can find out what kind of person they are by the way that they talk. And Ian Bailey certainly is someone that reveals a lot about who he is through the way he talks. I mentioned there was a French court case in which Ian Bailey was found guilty in his absence. And this is Ian Bailey talking after that trial. And he's talking about uh, Sophie's family. Look, I'm, I'm sorry for their pain. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for their suffering. I'm sorry about all the lies that they've chosen to believe. And I'm sorry for their suffering. You know, but the thing is this. There are no winners in this, only losers of a war of twisted words and corrupted statements. And I'm aware that they chose to believe the web of engrangement, of woven by devils. I'm sorry for them. And, you know, we're tough. And there we are. Well, now halfway through that, he starts reading something that he's prepared. When, he's, when it starts getting uh, full poetic, he, he is starting to read something. But this is not about them. He's asked about the family. And uh, he talks about, I... I'm sorry for their pain. I'm sorry for their suffering. And that's about as much as he throws towards the family. He has very little sympathy for them at all. Or if he does, his own feelings are much more important because he talks about, I'm sorry for their pain. I'm sorry for their suffering. He doesn't really show any empathy there with them at all, though. Just generic words that pain and suffering. Then he goes on to say, I'm sorry about all the lies they've chosen to believe. So he's starting to put them down because they've chosen to believe lies. And then he says again, I'm sorry for their suffering. So he goes on to repeat himself. He, he has no complex sympathy or empathy for this family at all because uh, he has to say, I'm sorry for their suffering twice. And then he starts to go into this more prepared thing that he said. But, you know, the thing is, there are no winners in this, only losers. And then he says, of a war of twisted words and corrupted statements. So it's a war, okay, which means one side versus the other. Um, and he's trying to say that they've believed the lies. Is he then saying, therefore, here's the truth? Well, he doesn't quite say that because it's a war of twisted words and corrupted statements. It's not a war between truth and lies or between good and evil or a wronged man and people accusing him. He says it's a war of twisted words and corrupted statements. And 
that does that include his own? He certainly doesn't mention in this that the war is between the truth, what actually happened between justice and these twisted words and corrupted statements. Ian Bailey doesn't say this is a war between my truth, my honesty, and the corrupted statements of all the others. Why not? And then he talks again about the web of, um, I guess it's web of lies that he's talking about. He then goes back to the Duplantier family and says, I'm sorry for them. Again, he said sorry already. So the, the, he has nothing new to say here. He's just repeating stuff he said before and finishes talking about himself or himself and Jules. He says, you know, we're tough and there we are. So he finishes on him. So this is someone very self-centered. And what's really revealing in this is the war of twisted words and corrupted statements can include his own twisted words and corrupted statements. He certainly does not mention the truth here at all. Look, I'm, I'm sorry for their pain. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for their suffering. I'm sorry about all the lies that they've chosen to believe and I'm sorry for their suffering, you know. But the thing is this, there are no winners in this, only losers of a war of twisted words and corrupted statements. And I'm aware that they chose to believe the web of engrangement, of woven by devils. I'm sorry for them. And, you know, we're tough, and there we are. I like to look at words knowing as little about the background that, as I can, because that means that I just read the words. I don't let evidence, I don't let facts or theories that I've heard spoil my thinking. Obviously, I have listened to the podcast about this. I have watched the documentaries, so I do have lots of things um, playing around in my mind, but I try and put a lot of that to the back of my head when I'm looking at words. This is to set up the next set of words. I believe that Ian Bailey really at first could not account for what he was doing at the time Sophie was murdered beyond saying it was two o'clock in the morning, I was in bed. And then a story came out from Ian backed up by Jules that actually that night he remembered he had a, an article to write. He was a journalist and he had a deadline to hit. So he started, he got up in the middle of the night and started writing this article and the article was finished in the morning. I guess then the premise is, if I wrote the article that night, I could not have slipped out and murdered Sophie Toscan de Plantier. Here's Ian Bailey talking about that late night article. Well, I did get up that night and I did, um, and I did some writing here on, the, on this kitchen table. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what time it was. I had a deadline for a story the following that I thought had to be delivered on the Monday morning, and I hadn't finished that article. And what I did do was I got up and I uh, certainly at, it was nothing unusual for me particularly to get up at maybe three or four o'clock in the morning. If, my, if I woke up and my mind was alert and alive and I had something to write about and come down and write. Even if you had a lot to drink? Um, well, I hadn't had that much to drink that, that night. Um, I mean, I'd had a couple of pints and I might have had a whiskey or two, but that was over the course of the evening. Before I even look at the words, I hope you could hear how hard it was for Ian to tell that story. There was lots of erms and pauses while he thought of what to say next. Why didn't that story flow? Maybe the answer is in the words. Uh, Ian jumps back in time here. He says, well, I did get up that night. I did some writing on here. So he's telling a story. And if this was just him telling events as they happened, he did get up and he did some writing. And then he talks about where he did the writing and why is it important for him to say he did the writing on this kitchen table? I, I guess it's where he is sitting, talking when he's doing that interview 
But, you know, he really, it's not just enough for him to say that he wrote an article. He has to say where he was when he wrote the article. Why? Because this is, a, is an alibi. Um, then he says, I'm not exactly sure what time it was. I had a deadline for a story the following that I thought had to be delivered on the Monday morning and I hadn't finished that article. So a bit storytelling here as well. It's a bit and why, and why, and why. That and why is when someone is telling you a story and they spend more time telling you why things happened than telling you what happened. Or they spend as much time telling you why things happened as what happened. We have to look at that and say, why are they justifying? Why are they explaining so much? Why aren't they just telling me the events? And then he says, and what I did do was I got up. He's already said he got up, so he's jumping back in time to almost tell this story again. Very interesting. When someone's being truthful and telling events, they are just going to tell you what happened, what happened, what happened, what happened in, in chronological order. And he's jumping about quite a lot here and also telling us why certain things happened. And then he says, it's normal. What does he say? It was nothing unusual for me, particularly to get up at maybe three or four in the morning. So he's trying to say... It was normal for him to do this. And then he lists all the conditions that it would take for this thing to happen. Therefore, it really wasn't normal if you look at all the conditions. So he says, it was nothing unusual for me particularly to get up at maybe three or four in the morning. And here come the conditions. If my, if I woke up, okay, so there's condition one, and my mind was alert and alive, condition two, and I had something to write about. So he's trying to say that it, it, it was nothing unusual for me, particularly to get up at maybe three or four o'clock in the morning. But then here come all the ifs. It was nothing unusual for me to get up and write. I mean, that is if I woke up, if my mind was alert, if my mind was alive, and if I had something to write about. That's not normal. That's not usual. And if my mind was alert and alive... If my mind was alive is not a regular turn of phrase. It's not a phrase that is in common use, is it? So why did he use the word alive? Why, why, why was alive in his head then? We're dealing with a murder case. I don't like the word alive in there. He's then asked, even if you'd had a lot to drink, and he says, um, well, I hadn't had that much to drink that that night uh i mean i'd had a couple of pints and i might have had a whiskey or two uh that was over the course of the evening now he doesn't answer the question he's saying it's nothing unusual for me to get up and write in the middle of the night and he's asked even if you had a lot to drink um and he doesn't say yes even if i had a lot to drink i would get up and write i was just wired that way that's how i work best or Oh, no, if I'd had a lot to drink, I'd probably would just sleep through the night and do my writing in the morning. He doesn't say that. He only goes to this particular case and he's asked a question in general, but he answers in the specific. What he does is he's playing it down. So he says, I'd had a couple of pints, which literally means I had two pints, but we use the word couple to mean not very many most of the time, you know. You might say, I've seen that person on the bus a couple of times. And you don't literally mean two, you mean several. A low number, but it's more than two. The same with, I've had a couple of problems with my phone recently. You don't mean I've had two problems, you mean I've had some problems. Couple can be used to sound like you mean two, to sound like you mean a low number, but in reality you mean a few. 
we use couple because it doesn't sound very big when we're minimizing how often something's happened or how much we've consumed of something we'll use couple to to minimize it it sounds small but it actually could cover quite a lot and the same in I might have had, so he's playing it down, just maybe had a whiskey. Uh, but it's, it's a whiskey or two. We use one or two. It, it literally does mean one of something or two of something. But in use, it's a minimizer. It means a few. It means not many. It means not tens, not hundreds. But again, he's minimizing how much drink he had that evening. And that was over the course of the evening as well. So these, this small number of drinks is spread out over a large number of time is what he wants you to think. And I want to know why he had some trouble with this question. He's asked, even if you had a lot to drink, he's talking about how it's not particularly unusual for him to write articles late at night. And he's asked, even if you had a lot to drink, a question about the generality of getting up in the night and writing these articles. And he struggles with that. He says, um, well, and then he only deals with the night in question and says how much he had to drink that night. Why did he struggle with that question? I think potentially it's it's this is fictitious. He wasn't usually getting up in the middle of the night to write articles, so he doesn't have an easy to come to answer to put out to the question about the normality of doing this and would he usually do this even if he'd had a lot to drink. So he only goes to what he's already constructed in his head, which is this single night when he's he's constructing an alibi for himself that night. This doesn't mean he's a murderer, but I think this is a constructed alibi. So he has something concrete to say about what he was doing when Sophie was murdered. And then he does play down the amount he had to drink because when you're creating an alibi, it's not a good idea to have an alibi where you have had lots to drink at the time of a murder. That's not a great alibi to set yourself up with. Well, I did get up that night and I did, um, and I did some writing here on, the, on this kitchen table. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what time it was. I had a deadline for a story the following that I thought had to be delivered on the Monday morning and I hadn't finished that article and what I did do was I got up and I uh, certainly at, it was nothing unusual for me particularly to get up at maybe three or four o'clock in the morning. If, my, if I woke up and my mind was alert and alive and I had something to write about and come down and write. Even if you had a lot to drink? Um, well, I hadn't had that much to drink that, that night. Um, I mean, I'd had a couple of pints and I might have had a whiskey or two, but that was over the course of the evening. Jules Thomas is Ian Bailey's partner. She was around him that evening and she tells her story of this late night article. Because I just know what he was doing that night. He was here writing on this table a newspaper article. It wasn't there when we went to bed. When he got up, he was quite excited about what he'd written and he said, look at this, you know. Jules starts by saying, because I just know what he was doing that night, and as I pointed out in a couple of times previously, I don't like the word just, and that makes me dig around what's going on. And there it makes me question of, does she really know what he was doing that night? Because she just knows. And how she knows, I mean, that's really uncertain. He was here writing on this table again. They are talking about where it happened and she's parroting Ian's phrases again. And we saw that last time that uh, Jules uses a lot of the words and concepts that Ian has previously used. He was here writing on this table, a newspaper article. It wasn't there when we went to bed. When he got up, he was quite excited about what he'd written. And he said, look at this, you know. 
Well, that's not proof that he was there doing it. You see, the thing that makes you not a murderer is the fact that you didn't murder someone, not the fact that you magicked a newspaper article up overnight. So it's, it's really weak. And she, she doesn't say that she saw him write it. She just says it wasn't there when we went to bed and it was there in the morning. And this is proof of nothing. This is an entirely weak alibi, especially when you dig into something in her words that I think is really uh, interesting. I want to know when he wrote the article. We know in Ian's words, he got up around three or four in the morning. Nothing particularly unusual about that. And he wrote this article. But listen to Joel's words. It wasn't there when we went to bed. So they went to bed together. The newspaper article wasn't there. When he got up, he was quite excited about what he'd written. So when did he write the article? Because we went to bed and then he got up and he was excited about what he'd written. We know in Ian's words, he got up and wrote the article about three or four in the morning. But that doesn't square with the words that Jules has used. I mean, did he get up, write the article, then go back to bed, then wake up quite excited about what he'd written? Mm, I'm not sure. It wasn't there when we went to bed. When he got up, he was quite excited about what he'd written. And he said, look at this, you know. So he got up and said, look at this. That doesn't hang together. It certainly doesn't square with Ian's story. So again, in Jules's words, I am hearing deception. I am hearing weakness. I am seeing contradictions. Because I just know what he was doing that night. He was here writing on this table a newspaper article it wasn't there when we went to bed when he got up he was quite excited about what he'd written and he said look at this you know let's hear a bit more from jules this is after the french court result are we going to tell the world that you still stand by ian and say it's all a load of lies oh yeah i would yeah i do i always have yeah 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 it's um um, what I would like to say is all they've succeeded in doing is convicting a completely innocent person of a crime he had nothing to do with. So if you missed that, Jules is asked, are we going to tell the world that you will stand by Ian and say it's all a load of lies? And she says, oh yeah, I would, I do, I always have, yeah. Very interesting. Not her first reply is, I would as if it's an automatic response. This is just her way of being that. No matter what happens, she will stand by Ian. I would. Maybe because she believes him, or maybe because she feels that she has to. She then changes it. She says, I would, I do, I always have, yeah. They're not words that are really convincing that she's firmly behind this. It makes it sound more just like an automatic thought. This is the trade I'm on. These are the things I will do. And then Ian Bailey butts in. What I would like to say is all they've succeeded in doing is convicting a completely innocent person of a crime he had nothing to do with. And this is Ian Bailey in a nutshell for me. Number one, he just keeps saying he had nothing to do with this. Rarely does he commit and say, I didn't do this. 
he says, I had nothing to do with it. And I'm thinking about the phrase of nothing to do with me, that, that one you use. And I think that's when, when I'm asked about a situation or when I hear people asked about a situation and it's a situation you may have control over or you may have seen something going wrong but think it's not my place to say something or this person's so stubborn that I, if I said anything it won't change it but I know it's going to go bad. And when someone says, why did this happen? You go, it was nothing to do with me. And often that is to put the blame on that other person. You could have stepped in and stopped it. You could have taken some action, but the other other person was making it all go wrong. So you say nothing to do with me. Not I didn't do it, but you say nothing to do with me. Also notable there that Ian Bailey does say um, convicting an innocent person of a crime, not a murder. So he's downplaying it there. Are we going to tell the world that you still stand by Ian and say it's all a load of lies? Oh yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah. I do. I always have. Yeah. 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 It's um. All right. Um, what I would like to say is all they've succeeded in doing is convicting a completely innocent person of a crime he had nothing to do with. And that's all the words I was planning on listening to from this words of West Cork. Time for some overall conclusions. In the words we've listened to, and I didn't pick words out particularly because I found them deceptive. I wanted to get a broad feeling for the story. But in the words I've pulled out, there are so many lies being told. Let's get to ones straight away. I think it's fair for me to conclude, given the overwhelming evidence in the words, that the police wanted to nail fit up Ian Bailey for this and they put pressure on people to give statements that gave evidence against Ian Bailey. That doesn't mean he's innocent. It doesn't mean he's a murderer either. Now, Jules Thomas, Ian Bailey's partner, she was my big surprise when I looked at these words. I put Jules Thomas in because, as I said in in episode three, I found her very thoughtful and measured when she spoke. And I thought we get some, a different side to the story from listening to Jules Thomas. But in her words, I found very little, if anything, to reassure me in her words She was being deceptive for sure and I want to know why she was being deceptive. And then we come to the prime suspect, Ian Bailey. There are too many indicators of deception for me to say that Ian Bailey is telling the truth. He doesn't often give that straight and firm denial that I'm looking for. That alibi that we listened to in this episode, the one about writing an article late at night, it's very flimsy. There's so many holes, there's so many indicators of deceptive language in Ian and Jules telling of it. Why? Probably because that is a false alibi. It's been made up. But even then, is it false because Ian needs to construct an alibi because he committed a murder? Or is it because Ian did not kill Sophie but was under severe suspicion of doing so. And he didn't have an alibi. He was in bed at the time. So he thought he needed an alibi to take the pressure off. So he constructed this one and he thinks he's clever enough to get away with that one. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. All I can do is look at the words and tell you what I think. But I can look at what Ian Bailey keeps coming back to. He keeps saying, I had nothing to do with this and I know I didn't do it. These are distant denials. It really, really bothers me when he states his innocence. It's weak. It's distant. Instead of saying, it was not me that murdered Sophie, 
I didn't do it. I was at home. I was fast asleep in my bed. There is no evidence that I carried out this crime. It's It was nothing to do with me. I had no knowledge of this crime. I know I'm innocent. And this is where I was supposed to leave it. After listening to these words, distant denials are still denials. They are not proof of guilt. But I wasn't happy with that as a conclusion. I, I almost felt like I was in the same state as the investigation that quite a lot pointed towards one person and certainly quite a lot pointed to them not telling the full truth and not being 100% honest. And the only clue I had to what potentially could have happened was the words that I picked up in episode one, which said to me Ian could truthfully be describing a stalker scenario and it didn't feel right to me. So I sat back and I looked, had I missed something? And I went back and I watched some more interviews with Ian Bailey and I tried to see what it was, what what had I missed, or had I missed something that was going to give me a more satisfactory conclusion? And I found something. And that's what we'll look at in episode five. What do you think? Wordsofwestcork.com is where to go and give your comments, questions, suggestions. And in the next episode, the last episode, we'll go through some of those as well as hearing something else from me and Bailey that I think is very pertinent. Neveratruerword.com is where you will find my books on how to decode the words that people say to find truth and lies and what's going on beneath those words. I also post regularly on true crime and stories in the news there. Neveratruerword.com So the next time, the final episode, we'll look at your comments, questions and queries that you've sent through wordsofwestcourt.com and we'll hear from Ian Bailey one final time and I'll give you my summing up. Do I think it's possible Ian Bailey was involved in the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier?